The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't know, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're beginning a six-week series today called Hard to Believe. It's going to be different than our normal series. It's going to be topical. Um, It's not going to be preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. I'm not even really going to preach verse by verse through that verse we just read this morning. Um, In this series, we are attempting to answer some of the top objections that people in our culture have to Christianity. And we're going to do our best to present the objections each week in an honest and charitable way, and then answer them to the best of our abilities, given the time frame that we have. Uh, But I want us to be aware that all of these issues and all of these objections we'll be talking about are complex. Each week literally could be its own book. In fact, hundreds of books have been written on each objection. And so I'm going to try to scratch the surface of each one and do my best with it, but I also want us to know that I'm not going to be able to answer every single but what, but what if objection that's going to come at me, okay, or come at us. But each week I am planning on posting some follow-up materials on the city. That's our social media kind of networking site that you can, you can go to our website, hit the city, and you can find it's kind of our back door. We post all the information and stuff on there. I'll be posting some follow-up materials on the city. And if you're looking for more detail, you can email me and I'd love to talk with you. Uh, or at least recommend some books for you to go deeper into each topic. Also, our missional communities are going to kind of following along with us in this series. And so they're going to be tackling the same topic we'll be talking about today in all of our missional communities this week, watching some video with Tim Keller. And so be there, be more follow-up, and uh, we can go a little little bit deeper uh, as a community into these questions and objections as well. Now, Before I jump into our first objection this morning, I should at least say why we're doing this. Why are we answering these objections each week? To put it simply, I want skeptics to know that the Christian faith has the best answers to our deepest questions about life. It's okay to ask these questions and to wrestle with doubts and be unsure of things. And some of the greatest minds have been asking these questions for centuries 
And some of the, some of the greatest minds have settled inside the walls of Orthodox Christianity and found that Orthodox Christianity has the resources to answer the deepest, obje- deepest objections and questions in the best way. And then secondly, I want Christians to know that following Christ does not require a person to check their brain at the door. Deep thinking is a very Christian thing to do. And even if we do not share some of these doubts and objections, if we are going to be good missionaries to those in our city, we we need to know these objections. We need to understand them and be able to provide answers that our neighbors are seeking. And we need to do that and not, not in kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of times what happens is it's called a straw man argument. You build up the weakest argument your opponent has, and then you knock it down and say, aha, look what we did. Look how dumb those people are for believing that. And that's not what we're going to do this morning. And that's not, what we're going to do this series. And that's, we don't think that's helpful at all. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to jump into our first objection this morning. Father, um, I am not uh, qualified uh, to, to preach this message. Um, I, I'm not an intellectual elite I haven't, um, you know, delved the depths of the sciences to be able to bring up all the resources that are, that are there. Um, and and I, I'm really kind of a hack and a newbie when it comes to this, Lord. There's probably many in this room who are far more advanced than I am. Um, but I pray that you would uh, honor my study, honor my work, honor my effort, um, honor your word, that you would give me grace um, to communicate clearly and in a compelling way, and just uh, help us uh, tackle this subject together and seek the truth. Um, We know that you're the God of all truth, so help us find that. Uh, Through your Son, Jesus, by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to answer the objection or the question, hasn't science disproven Christianity? Well, that's a big question, and we could go a lot of directions with it. Um, I was recently talking to a friend who had majored in the sciences of biology and chemistry in college, and then a few years later, he'd become a Christian. And he said that when he embraced Christianity, he felt like he had to shut off one side of his brain. All of his scientific training, he just kind of had to close the door on that and forget about it. He had to stop being scientifically inclined in order to have faith in Christ. It seems like a lot of Christians could be described as science deniers or science doubters. And many churches often discourage people, um, you know, to trust the findings of science. This leads us to ask, what should Christians believe about the origins of the universe? What should Christians believe about the theory of evolution? What should Christians believe about the historical reliability of the scriptures? On and on. We could go. But what's interesting is the same thing is happening on the other side of the aisle. When you study the sciences, it seems like most scientists could be described as God deniers or God doubters. And many of them discourage their followers from even asking the questions about God. Doesn't that seem kind of like an unscientific thing to do? If science is about the search for truth, then why discourage people from looking for truth in philosophy and theology? 
There's a lot of peer pressure in the science departments of most universities to try to shut off the religious side of our brains, to stop being religious in order to really study the sciences. So this leads us to ask, what should a scientifically inclined person believe about the meaning of life? about the existence of the non-quantifiable realities of love and emotions and the existence of a personal soul, things that we believe to be true, yet science cannot prove them. And what should they believe about the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth? I asked one of my atheist friends this, and he said, he dismissed me, and he said, Jesus is irrelevant. And I said, well, that's anti-intellectual. You're... Jesus has been the most influential person ever in the history of humanity. 2,000 years later, we're still gathering, many are gathering to worship his name. I mean, out of the Christian religion, governments have been, I mean, I'm not even going to get into it, right? I, I, I'm not even going to get into that. It's a whole other to- topic. To say that Jesus is irrelevant is to shut off the intu- intellectual side of your brain. It's anti-scientific. So, it's anti-intellectual. Now, I'm sure that most of us in this room feel or have felt some tension between science and Christianity. Now, I am not sure when or where this tension started. I have read extensively on both sides, and both sides claim the other side started it. And it definitely goes way back, at least to Galileo and the Copernican Revolution and all of this, but there's stuff that goes even before that. But here, this is where we are, and I don't have time to go into all that. I wish I, w- I wish I could. If you want to stop me after the gathering, I'll love to nerd out with you if you want to. <laughs> there are many religious people who, here's where we are right now. There are many religious people who could be called science deniers who think that science is at war with their faith. But there are also many scientific folks that could be called God deniers and claim that faith is at war with science. Both sides believe that science and faith are at war with each other. That's the analogy that's often used. But according to the Bible, according to scripture, this is not the case. There is no war between science and Christianity. And we need to know that. It's important for us to know that. Now, I Millennials and the millennial generation, I think it's from like 1980 to whatever it is, 2000 or something like that. I can't remember. I'm 1979, so I'm almost a millennial. Actually, I have no idea what I am. All right? I, don't, I definitely don't act like a millennial or think like a millennial. But we have a lot of millennials in our church, and this is a question many millennials are asking. In fact, according to a recent uh, 2017 Barna research poll, one in four millennials say the church is anti-intellect. Nearly one in three millennials think the church is anti-science. And it's interesting because if you study the history of Christianity, you will discover that the rise of modern science came out of a Christian view of the world as the creation of an intelligent God. And science could not come out of any other philosophy of the world at the time. The Bible is not anti-science. The Christian faith is not anti-science at all. But here is where we need to define our terms. And I have a definition of science up on the screen. Science is 
bang, according to Webster's Dictionary, a knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through the scientific method. So the definition of science includes scientific method. Okay, well, we need to define the scientific method then. What is the scientific method? Let's go on to the next one. Principles and procedures for the systematic pursuit of knowledge involving the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data, uh uh-oh, through observation and experiment. So the only way that the that, um, the, the, the scientific method, we can understand science is through the collection of data, through observation and experiment, and the formulation and testing of hypothesis. Okay? So from these two definitions of science and the scientific method, we learn that science has to do with pursuing knowledge regarding the general truths and laws of nature, collecting data through observation and experiment and making hypotheses. Now, when we stay within this definition, we really don't have any tension between Christianity and science. The Christian believes that God has given us two books to know him. He has given us creation where he reveals his glory. Our scripture um, said that this morning, that specifically his divine nature and power can be perceived through his creation. We read this book of creation, the spectacles we use to read the book of creation are science, the scientific method. That's how we read creation. And God has also given us his words written in the Bible and revealed perfectly in his son. That's the other way that we come to know God. Now, unfortunately, here's where we go wrong. Many scientists don't like to stay in their lane. And they try to make science into a philosophy of life, a way of seeing the world and living in it, or even, you could argue, a religion. They make science into a religion. See, science becomes their worldview or theory of everything, as atheist Richard Dawkins has called it. And this is where Christians have to draw the line in the sand. As Christians, we do not reject science. We reject naturalism. Naturalism teaches that there is no God and that the world is called a closed system. Naturalism is what happens when science becomes your religion or philosophy of life. It believes that nothing outside of nature is real And the only way to discover truth is through science. Let's please show the first slide I have. This is called a closed system. Everything that exists, okay, this is according to uh, naturalism or science as religion, I'm going to call it. Everything that exists, okay, we're talking space, time, matter, everything that exists inside that circle, okay? And so science is 
science's only realm is inside that circle. They say all you, we all, we only believe in what can be uh, proven by data and observation and we can, you know, uh, we can test it. Well, you can only test what's in the natural world, right? And so that's where science does its work is inside the natural world. Now, do you see the subtle shift here? Hold on, just keep that up there. Do you see this subtle shift between science and naturalism? Science is about studying creation, what's inside that circle, studying in what is in front of us in the natural world. But naturalism says, since we can only study what is in front of us, that is all there is. There is no spiritual. There is no soul. There is no goal. I only believe in what can be scientifically verified. Now, philosopher Alvin Plantinga pushes back on this, and he says this, that is like a drunk who loses his keys in the dark, insisting that they're under the streetlight because that's the only place that he can see. Right? So because science can only study the natural world, we believe that's all there is. They're only the natural world is all there is. Right? Based upon this definition of science, it can only ever look into creation, into the natural world. That means it cannot ever explain anything that could exist out of it. But can we logically prove that something exists outside of this natural world? I think we can. But before we do that, first off, I, want it to, I think it needs to be said that science, and we are not anti-science in any way, science cannot prove all kinds of things that we know to be real and true. Okay? First, here's one, existential truth. Science cannot prove that you are not merely a brain in a jar being manipulated to think this is actually happening. You could be in the matrix. You can't, science can't prove it, that it's not. It also cannot prove that the world wasn't created five minutes ago with the appearance of age and with fake memories in your head and half-digested food in your stomach, etc., However, it is still rational to believe that our memories are true and that the world is real. Second, moral truth. Science cannot prove that rape is evil. And, and, and based on naturalism, uh, a sharks forcefully cop copulate with their mate. Do we call that rape? No. Why is it wrong as a human being if we're all part of the natural world and we all came from the same ancestor, etc.? While it's possible through science to demonstrate, for example, that there are negative physical or psychological effects of rape, there's no scientific test that can prove that it is evil. Science can describe how the natural world is, but moral truth carries an oughtness, the way things ought to be, that goes beyond what merely is. Science cannot tell us something is evil. Three, logical truth. Consider the statement. Science is the only way to really know truth. How could you prove that statement by science? It's actually self-refuting because there's no scientific test you could use to prove that it is true. Science cannot prove logic to be true because it assumes and requires logic in order for it to work. Fourth, historical truth. Science cannot prove that Barack Obama won the 2008 United States presidential election. There's no scientific test that we could perform to prove it. 
We could have an investigation if we wanted to confirm that he actually did win. But the method for proving historical truths is different from testing scientific truths since historical truths are by nature non-repeatable. Five, experiential truth. Science cannot prove that your spouse loves you, that your children love you. When asked why so-and-so loves you, you may cite precedent, right? Times that they did things that made you feel good or they did loving acts for you. But this is a particular type of historical truth. There is no scientific test that can confirm a lifetime of experience of knowing a person. Therefore, science is not the only arbiter of truth, okay? Now, can we logically prove that something exists outside of this normal, of this uh, natural world? I think we can. Here is what is called the Kalam cosmological argument. Let's put the, put the first premise of this argument up there. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. First off, we can, we can say this is true because of our rational intuition. Things don't just randomly appear, right? No matter what your children said, right? That toy did not magically jump from there to there, right? Somebody caused that thing to happen, right? Somebody caused the toothpaste to be smeared over the, over the mirror. It didn't just happen, right? We know that. That's worse than magic, right? Uh, and common experience tells us this is true. Things don't just pop into existence, right? Can you imagine driving and trying to drive and just things popped into existence, right? But this is also proven to be true by the causal principle. If there is an effect, if there is an event, there is a cause. Something cannot come from nothing. This is arguably the first principle of science. This is why they're chemical reaction and, and physics. Okay? So something can never come from nothing. All right? Now, second principle, second uh, premise of this, of this argument is the universe began to exist. Now this, this premise actually goes against a lot of Eastern religions that believe that the universe is itself eternal. The Bible does not teach that the universe is eternal, but the universe had a beginning. Okay. The discovery during this century of the expansion of the universe reveals that the universe is not eternal, that the universe had a beginning. All matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into existence at a point in the finite past before which nothing existed. As Stephen Hawking says in his 1996 book, the nature of space and time, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking is a notorious atheist, if you did not know. Now, what does that mean? That means the universe had a beginning. Well, the scientific method tells us that every event has a cause. Something cannot come from nothing. So if there was a point in time when nothing existed. Now, sometimes my friends, my, my atheist friends, I argue, and they, they don't understand what the word nothing means. I say, how does something come from nothing? And they say, well, gases. Say, well, what? Gases? Last time I checked, that was something, right? Nothing, nothing means nothing. 
There was a point in time, science says this, where nothing existed. Think of this. Listen, no space, no time, no matter, nothing. How did the universe come into being if there was a time where nothing existed? Something, no matter how hard you try, something can never come from nothing, right? That's the definition of nothing. Nothing has no properties, no power, no potential. It's impossible. Therefore, third, third, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now mention, I have not mentioned scripture. This is based on logic here. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, Christianity says that cause is God. I want to uh, go back to the, I'm sorry, the, go, go to the second circle drawing that I have. I'm all over the place. Here is the system that scripture posits to us. There is the natural world and there is God on the outside of the natural world. He can work in it providentially through it, but God exists outside of the created world. God is not of this world. He never had, so you might say, did God, where, where did God come from? God never had a beginning. He is spirit and is the uncaused causer. He has unlimited power. This is how he brought the universe out of nothing. Science and cosmology cannot explain the origin of the universe, but Christianity can. This is one way that we see science and theology working together. Science can tell us what is, and theology can tell us why it is that way. Now go back to the, the, the fourth side of the three premises of the argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. I have watched philosophers debate some of the, the, the highest level cosmologists that are alive today, and I have never seen one atheistic cosmologist be able to refute this argument. And all they try to do is muddle some of the, the terms inside of it, right? The uni- some of them are, try- are going back to, well, maybe the universe is uh, eternal. The universe cannot be eternal. Second law of therm- thermodynamics has already taught us that the universe, all the power that's put in the universe is already there. And we are on this entropy state. We are flowing in the universe and eventually the universe is going to run out of power. And we're going to, they tell us we're going to, the earth is going to wind up cold and dead like the moon or like other planets. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Christianity embraces this scientific finding, this philosophy, this logic, and says, we know who the cause is. Our scriptures tell us who the cause is. That cause is God. And it's interesting, from what we know about the universe, this uncaused causer must be superior in order to have such effect on such a vast universe, right? This causer, in order to create the galaxies that we have and the universe that we have, this this causer must be beyond space-time universe. He must be 
This causer must be spaceless. He must be timeless. He must be immaterial. He must be uncaused and immensely powerful. Well, that is the exact God that is represented in the scriptures. Not only that, but if you think about, I know I'm getting into this. I'm sorry. If it's going over your head, listen to it again. It'll come back on the backside. All right. Not only that, but if you think about the metaphysical jump between a rock and a human being, you can see that there is a gap. There's a huge gap between a rock and a human being. There's something called personhood, right? There's something deep and there's a huge gap there that you, that you can't recreate, right? There's something going on there that we don't, some, some of us, we don't even understand. The scripture tells us it's because human beings are made imago day in the image of God. But there's a huge gap there. We are personal. We have a being in a way that a rock does not. And we have life. And listen, we know this. Life never comes from non-life. And this is different from um, that that something can never come from nothing, right? That's one thing. Something can never come from nothing. This is a whole nother metaphysical jump. Life, a rock can never give birth to life, right? Something that's inanimate cannot become animate, right? Life can never flow from non-life. That means, listen, at the heart of the universe isn't a force, isn't a power. At the heart of the universe is something personal. Where could our personhood come from? Right? Inanimate gases and molecular, it can't create personhood. So therefore, at the heart of the universe must be something there that's personal. Well, the scriptures teach us that's exactly who God is. He is personal in his nature. He is personal in his character. He is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from all outside of time. This is who God is. Now, the Kalam cosmological argument proves that it is more probable, I'm going to use scientific language here, more probable that God exists than he doesn't. Not only that, but it also suggests that what God must be like. It sets us on the path to discover who God is. And when we turn to the pages of our Bible, this is the type of God we find. We find a God who speaks all of the natural world into being ex nihilo, out of nothing, a big bang. And he is all powerful, omnipresent and eternal. He himself is spirit who exists outside of the natural world. And of course, he's also deeply personal, existing in himself in a Trinitarian relationship. Now, I'm doing all right. I think there's also, so we, as we're talking about this topic, we're also going to say, okay, well, what about evolution? Well, evolution, we often hear that evolution is a fact. Um, Evolution actually is a word that means a lot of different things. Uh, Francisco Ayala, an evolutionary biologist, says that evolution can mean three different things. One, that present-day organisms descended from organisms that lived earlier with modifications. A turtle becomes a turtle, but this turtle can evolve and change, but it's still a turtle, right? It can look different than it was before, but it's a turtle. It modifies, right? You can kind of call this horizontal evolution, right? 
Um, Secondly, that biological complexity is to be explained through genetic mutation and natural selection. Natural selection is the key there. And third, the reconstruction of the evolutionary tree of life would show that all the branches go back to some primordial ancestor in the past, okay? Two and three are from Darwin's theory. Basically, this is the, 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 the side of evolution that says we all came from, I'm just going to say primordial soup, right? We evolved from a dirty puddle, and we, we, we became a lower form of organism, and then we uh, we kind of jump into higher forms of organism. We mutate and we evolve in, in this way. And when people say this, now listen, when people say that evolution is a fact, they are speaking in, term, in the first term, that microevolution, evolution, one species stays along the same species, but they evolve itself. They're speaking of micro or horizontal evolution because that indeed is a fact. But according to Ayala, Two and three are of tremendous dispute, and there's much that we don't know, and a lot of ongoing research, and there's a lot of people that argue against what's called uh, macro evolution, species changing into another form of species through uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. And again, this version of evolution is still only a theory; it's not a fact. But listen, this is what I, this is all, all I'm really going to talk about. All I'm going to say about this. Um, there are brilliant Christian scientists who believe that the word of God or the, the Bible is the word of God. It's wholly true. It's completely true. It's inerrant. And they believe in evolution. And in, Dar- in, in, in a sense, in Darwin's theory of evolution, they do not believe that it was guided just by natural selection. They believe that God himself guided the evolutionary process to bring about the human beings. And then God breathed his life into them. I'm not saying that's what I hold, but I, uh, I read a book um, by Francis Collins and Francis Collins. Uh, he is the head or was the head of the human genome project. He, his team cracked the code of the human DNA. Uh, he has been elected to the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. And he had even received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the National Medal of Science. And he was an atheist. He went to Yale. He was an atheist who converted to Christianity. And he believes that God guided the evolutionary process. You can read about his conversion, about his beliefs um, in the DNA of God, um, that's the book, uh, that's one of his books that's out right now. But there, there is, no, I'm going to say right now, there is no definitive, this is the Christian position on evolution. It's a science we're still discovering, right? We're still looking. There are old earth, young earth, there's a lot of science, and there's a lot of, on both sides of the argument, there's a lot of people arguing on both sides. I'm going to post a lot of articles on the city. I'm not really going to get into it this morning. But I want to say it's not an issue for us to divide on, and evolution itself is not attacking Christianity. It's not. It, it, it's, it can't. Now, science as religion, that we have a problem with, right? If you use Darwin's theory of evolution to see, to prove like it, it's, it's just, you know, God's not involved at all. It's all natural selection. Yes, that, ha- that poses a problem. We would disagree with that. But sometimes you kind of, you hear slogans that say like, well, science deals with facts and religion deals with faith, but that's a gross caricature of both science and religion. Science, as science probes the universe, 
It's going to encounter problems and questions which are philosophical in character and therefore cannot be resolved scientifically, but which can be illuminated by a theological perspective, specifically the meaning of life, right? Now listen to this. Um, I am, I had a schedule. I'm surprised. Robert, Robert Jastrow, head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. This is what he envisions it this way. So, so there's philosophy, there's theology, there's science. And the religion of science says, forget about everything else. Just study science. Science is the only place that you can find truth. Listen uh, to how uh, Robert Jastrow of, of NASA describes this. He says, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to, about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Faith and science are coming together. They are not opponents. They are complementary. Faith and science help us glorify God. And when rightly viewed, science is the study of God's creation. It helps us think God's thoughts after him. It helps uh, increase human flourishing and, and bring about and just blesses the created world. It's for the good of others and it helps us enjoy the world. But because of our, what the scriptures say, our sinful condition, we turn away from the creator God and we suppress the truth, Romans tells us. And we want to say, God does not exist. Let's just trust science. I only want to believe in what I can see and what I can touch. See, science helps us understand the natural world, but God himself exists outside of it. But God has not created his universe and then stayed aloof from it. It's a deistic perspective. He can and he does providentially work inside of his creation. And this is where the Bible comes in. As we read the Bible, the Bible gives us a testimony of how God has worked inside of his creation. The ways that he's come down to us to show us who he is and show us what he's done. And this is, you know, ultimately seen in the story of Jesus. If you could put that uh, natural world and the God slide up there one more time. This is the world that we believe exists. We believe there is a spiritual world out there. There's something deeper to the human person than just chemicals going off, right? Wives, you have permission to slap your husband. If you ask, do you love me? And he says something about chemical processes in his brain. Okay, slap him. You know, right? That's, that's not real. There's something deeper than just hormones to being a human being, right? There's something deeper. There's a spiritual world that exists out there. And here's what Christianity states. 
Christianity states that God created the natural world, but then the natural world rebelled from him and disobeyed him. And that natural world was fractured and broken. And now all of a sudden creatures are killing each other. Human beings are doing terrible things to one another. The world itself is under a curse and we have natural disasters. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this natural world? Well, the story of the Bible teaches that God does the unthinkable and God enters into this natural world to redeem it. He's not going to just obliterate it and destroy it and start over on a different planet, right? Like he could do. No, God enters into it. He comes into the womb of Mary, right? Over 2000 years ago. And from this woman, right? Inside this nothing village, this poor people, Jesus Christ, the son of God, he existed eternally outside of the natural world for all eternity past. He becomes a part of creation. He comes in at a point in time and puts on flesh and grows up and walks among us. And this Jesus lives a perfect life, right? Now, listen, science cannot, the only way science could Wow. Science cannot disprove Christianity. The best chance they had was, was when Jesus, uh, was, when they said he was resurrected, they could have went and grabbed his bones, right? Nope, here's his bones, here's his body. Look, he can't be resurrected, right? But that, was, that never happened, that never, could be, that never could be produced. Jesus Christ lived inside of creation, lived a perfect life, convinced his own family that he was the son of God. Think about that if you have siblings. He convinced his brother that he was the son of God, right? And it, interesting, James didn't believe Jesus was the son of God until Jesus was resurrected. Jesus did miracles. Jesus did some phenomenal things. And whoa, that, that was cool, man. I don't, you got a gift. David Blaine, I don't know how you do that. Stand on the side and just clap, right? Give him a golf clap. But then G, he watches his brother get crucified on a Roman cross, a sword pierced in his side, and he gets buried in a rich man's tomb. And he's he already prophesied that he would raise again on the third day. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking and talking back into his brother's life and back into other people's lives. And he could be touched and seen and he's glorified. And all this, this you know, struggling band of faulty believers that had kind of walked away from God and thought Jesus was just the whole movement has ended. All of a sudden, now there's this evidence right in front of them. He is, has been resurrected to new life. And this sparks this whole new movement. And Jesus says, I'm coming again, and I'm going to recreate all the natural world when I come back the second time. I'm going to fix everything that was broken. And Jesus, through his spirit, is doing that in us right now the broken pieces of our lives, he is wanting to heal. He is wanting to mend. Science does nothing with the soul. You want to know how broken we are? If you ever experienced the mental health industry and you get inside our mental health industry, even in the quad cities in our nation, it's so broken. We don't know what to do with mental illness. We don't know what to do with wounds of the soul. God does. Jesus does. Now, Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies the death that we deserve for rebelling against him, for worshiping creation rather than the creator. 
And he says, if you put your faith in me, now this is not a blind faith. This is not a leap into the dark. This is based on historical research, right? This is based on historical fact. We know for a fact Jesus Christ was crucified and he was died and he was buried in a rich man's tomb and he was seen by people after his death. Those are absolute historical facts that can be proven. All right? Now listen, this is interesting. Islam says, Islam, which comes about 600 years after Christianity, it was, the, the Quran was written about 600 years after Christianity, says that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He, he was crucified, but he, he faked it. He faked it. Now, it's, that's kind of like saying, you know, uh, the SEAL, SEAL Team 6, you know, didn't kill Osama bin Laden, okay? They're great at their job, right? Roman centurion soldiers didn't make mistakes. They were, they were professional killers. That's what they did. And just, it's just it's scientifically improbable and improvable. And that's in the Quran. That's one of the reasons that the, the Quran is not historical historically reliable. Christianity, we say it's a historic, we believe it's a historical fact. It can be proven by Jewish historians, other people of the time. Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ died on a cross. Jesus Christ was buried in a rich man's tomb. Jesus Christ was resurrected again on the third day and was seen by people. Now, what what is that? Seen by uh, over 500 of his followers. What does that mean? God exists. The supernatural exists. The supernatural has stepped into the created world and therefore miracles can happen. The the act of creation was a miracle. The act of recreation and resurrection of Jesus, that too is a miracle. Now, I encourage you to put your faith in that. Now, let me give you five good reasons that you should believe in Christianity. Number one, as I kind of mentioned, it is testable. Christianity does not merely make esoteric claims. It doesn't say get in one with the universe and you'll feel a little warmth and a glow or you'll feel more enlightened. No, it makes claims about logic. It makes claims about science. It makes claims about history. It makes claims about philosophy. And ultimately it makes claims about reality itself. It's testable. Second, it paints a picture of the world that matches reality. It does not force a person to deny that our world is real. Many Greek religions, other you know, world religions, Eastern religions say this is all just an illusion. Christianity doesn't say that. It cohesively explains why things are the way they are. Why is our world broken? Why is there murder? Why are there natural disasters? Christianity logically explains that. Third, it makes a non-compartmentalized life possible, or it integrates all of the uh, categories of our life. The Christian faith does not require a person to live one way when thinking about religious things and then live a totally different way at other times. You can be a Christian scientist in any, wherever you're at. You don't have to separate those things. Fourth, this is the big, one of the biggest. It presents salvation, getting reconnected with God, being made right before God, knowing God. It makes salvation as a free gift. Every other religion in the world presents some sort of works-based way to reconnect with God. Do these things, pray these prayers, face this way, gain enlightenment in some way. 
But at the heart of the Christian message is grace. Not more demands to somehow work our way to God. Listen, Christianity is not a religion of good advice. Every other religion is about good advice. Christianity is based on good news. And good news is different than good advice. Good advice tells you what you must do to be saved. Good news says this is what God has done to save you. God entered into human history in the man, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect death. He died a substitutionary death. And if you put your faith in him, you'll believe. He did all the work. He says it's finished. You put your trust in him and you can be saved. Only religion on the face of the planet, that grace is at the center. And five, finally, Christianity, of course, has Jesus at the center. Jesus is the most compelling and controversial figure in history. Many other religions claim to respect him, but Christianity is founded upon his life, his teaching, his identity. Why not begin by getting to know him? And one of the things you'll discover as you read the gospels and you start studying the life of Jesus, he's like nobody else. I wonder what Jesus would have been on the Myers-Briggs profile. I, I just try to figure it out. You know, like humble as humble gets and then as fiery as fiery gets when he needs to be. Right? Cool, calm, and collected. And then he can get in somebody's face if he needs to get in somebody's face. He has the right answers at all the time. He is the perfect personality. You read him and you see this divine coalescence of attributes that you don't find anywhere else in any other person on the planet so humble, will let people walk all over him. And then when the, he needs to stand up, he can stand up firmly, rightly, point people in the face and not back down to religious leaders. This divine coalescence of attributes we don't see. Jesus is fascinating. The world, I mean, some of the greatest philosophers look at him and just go, yes, I think he was a savant. I think he was a genius. I think he was, he had some kind of religious, you know, he, he, he could commune with something outside this world. No, 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 no. He was the son of God. That's why he could do that. Now, I, I just, I, I say, why don't you get to know him? Why don't you study him? One man who took on such a challenge was Dr. Alistair McGrath, who earned two doctorates at Oxford, Oxford University, one in molecular biophysics, biophysics, the other in theology. And he described his spiritual and intellectual journey into the Christian faith this way. At Oxford, to my surprise, I discovered Christianity. It was the intellectually most exhilarating and spiritually stimulating thing I could ever hope to describe. Better than chemistry. A yeah, right. A, a wonderful subject that I had thought to be in love, the love of my life and my future career. I went on to gain a doctorate for research in molecular biophysics from Oxford and found that immensely exciting and satisfying. But I knew I had found something better, like the pearl of great price that Jesus talks about in the gospel, which is so beautiful and precious that it overshadows everything. It was intellectually satisfying, imaginatively engaging, and aesthetically exciting. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God-man, the one who came from outside of the natural world, who put on flesh and dwelt among us. This is why Jesus, like miracles, followed Jesus. He wasn't showing off. He was making things right. 
He was showing how the kingdom of God will be in the future and how it should be here on earth. He was recreating people, restoring people. He was showing his followers, I am the one who can and will make all things new. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So has science disproved Christianity? Nah. I could have started with that. No, absolutely not. Science and Christianity work together, showing the glory of God, describing the glory of God in the natural world and in the supernatural world. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity this morning um, to talk about your natural world, to talk about you as creator, as sustainer. Um, Father, the more we do study science, the more we learn of you, the more we learn of the way that you've created us and the way that you sustain and govern uh, the natural world. But God, most of all, we are blown away by this God who created all things when all things went bad because of us, because you gave us this free will to do what we want with it and we rebelled from you. You didn't just start over on a different planet. You didn't just go death star on us and just obliterate us. You moved into the neighborhood. You, the eternal, entered into time. You, the one who exists in perfect community, entered into real life where people mocked you and betrayed you and spit on you and crucified you. And you did this because you wanted to redeem us. You wanted to love us. You wanted us to know how much the God of the universe loves us. I pray that this would stir our minds to worship you, but it would also stir our hearts. That we would feel the love and the affection, not just of a creator, but a heavenly father. Father, I pray that you would do that in the hearts of your people today, even as I speak. And as we come, as believers this morning, come um, to the Lord's table, we come knowing that this God put on flesh and dwelt among us, and we killed him. We crucified him. And yet at the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so this morning, we come with empty, dirty hands. We open up our hands, and you give us grace. You give us the body of your son and his lifeblood that flowed as he was cut down in the prime of his life. But he did it to glorify you and to rescue us. And so I pray that we would eat with worshipful hearts, stirred intellect this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.